In February 2021, the Biden administration began the process to unwind the Migrant Protection Protocols policy, also known as Remain in Mexico. At the South Texas border, the program had pushed thousands of migrants into a makeshift refugee encampment in Matamoros, Mexico. In the 10 days following an announcement to close the encampment, the United Nations began a humanitarian operation that unified the efforts of residents of the encampment, U.S.-based grassroots advocates, and local attorneys to safely process everyone into the United States. I am Laura Peña, attorney, advocate, born and raised in the Rio Grande Valley, and I'll be your guide as we journey through Valle de Sueños, Valley of Dreams. In the last episode, we talked about Los Olvidados, people like Antonio, whose cases had been denied in the unjust MPP courts. Los Olvidados, when I think about it, is not just that we have forgotten them, but also they are marginalized within their own group. This is Charlene, a longtime lawyer and immigrant rights advocate. And so when you shave off and you shave off, this is a divide and conquer. Your entire Latino community was under attack. And now they're breaking you to pieces. And as things drew out, frustrations mounted inside the encampment. The joy and jubilation of the initial days had waned as fewer and fewer people were left in the camp. A photo of a doll hanging on a noose from a tree was circulated, a clear message of escalating desperation by those who remained in the camp. Los Olvidados had not given up hope, though. However, things were dire. I also want to caution listeners because today's episode includes themes around sexual violence. There were minorities within minorities. Los Olvidados de los Olvidados. Inside the encampment, the indigenous migrants tried to keep to themselves. Even though they had their own area of the encampment, they were frequently harassed, verbally and physically. Due to the language barrier, it was often more difficult for them to get access to food, clean water, and receive the limited services that were available. Many of them had lost their way of living in the rural regions of Guatemala, Climate change and criminal insecurity had pushed them to leave their homes. Many of them had young children under the age of five. The biggest group that were marginalized were the indigenous. The Central American indigenous really suffered. The count that I had at the end right before COVID is, I think I had 48 families, and they spoke languages that even they didn't understand each other sometimes. According to reports, over 40 different languages were spoken by people put into MPP, most of them indigenous languages from Central America and other parts of South America. The court struggled to secure interpreters. Some people only spoke indigenous language. This is my friend and advocate, Luis Holmes. Especially from Guatemala. And uh, it was a very difficult situation because trying to complete uh, asylum application or to communicate with authorities in Mexico, they needed a translator. And um, official translators are not easy to find from indigenous language. So they were looking for some family member or for some friend to, to translate. Communication was a challenge even for us as their attorneys. 
After many fruitless attempts, I had finally found an interpreter located in California. They were one of perhaps two or three interpreters in the entire country who could communicate in a dialect my clients understood, Chalchiteco. But indigenous migrants weren't the only people facing acute hardships. In one global study conducted from 2014 to 2020, 3,514 LGBTQ people were murdered. Of these acts of violence globally, nearly 90% occurred in Colombia, Mexico, and Honduras. Mi nombre es Estuardo Cifuentes y soy coordinador general de Rape and Breach Asylum Seekers. Estuardo fled persecution in Guatemala based on his sexual orientation. Guatemala tiene un historial de, de desapariciones forzosas, de, de asesinatos por parte de las autoridades, y que también va, ha sido como visto desde parte de la comunidad LGBTQ, donde no tenemos muchos derechos. Yo en algún momento tuve visa para estar en México, entonces creí que México podría ser una opción. When he arrived to Matamoros, he helped establish the Rainbow Bridge to provide shelter to other members of his community awaiting their asylum cases. Matamoros, Tamaulipas, no tiene ninguna organización LGBTQ+. Sigue siendo un tema tabú en esta parte de México. Y la homofobia estaba muy generalizada. Aunque habían organizaciones de médicos en el lugar, siempre la comunidad LGBT siempre seguía siendo discriminada. Y ahí es donde nace la idea de abrir una casa para apoyar a la comunidad LGBT. Y a la fecha hemos albergado a más de 3,500 personas. I visited the shelter to explain what was happening inside the encampment. The residents of the Rainbow Bridge Shelter were another group that advocates were trying to prioritize entry to the U.S., even though they were living just a few blocks outside the encampment, we explained to the government that these folks were more at risk for being subjected to violence in Mexico, and they merited fast-track treatment. Cuando las mujeres trans tenían que poner su nombre legal, tenían que poner su identificación oficial siendo hombres, quedaban como hombres solteros, sin niños, sin adultos mayores, y pasaban automáticamente al final de esta lista de entrega de carpas. According to human rights groups, Mexico is the second most dangerous place in the world for transgender women. Violence against transgender women and other sexual minorities range from harassment to severe and prolonged psychological abuse, physical assault, torture, and targeted killings. Often, transgender migrants have also been exposed to multiple types of sexual violence. One of our clients, Cindy, was a trans woman from Honduras. She had been living in the shelter for several months. Cindy was tall and had a shy smile. She wore a black dress that day, and her hair was pulled back in a loose bun on top of her head. She held my hand as she explained that she couldn't live locked up like this any longer. It was just too dangerous on the streets for her. Valle de Sueños will return. Hi, Laura here. Valle de Sueños is an independently produced podcast, so if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a rating. It really does help. And if you know someone you think might enjoy this story, send it their way. Really appreciate it. Now, back to the episode. There were also regional 
and racial divides. Black asylum seekers have it the hardest because they stand out. They can't blend in. This is Felicia Rangel Sampanaro, the co-founder of the Sidewalk School for Asylum Seekers. And they don't speak the language. They speak Haitian Creole. They have a lot more going against them than all the other asylum seekers do. And racism is very, very real in Mexico. Many people in the U.S. don't fully understand the diversity of the Americas. The Black migrants came from a range of countries, including Cuba, Honduras, Colombia, Brazil, among others. And the effect of colorism and racism throughout their journey, but in particular in Mexico, was pretty severe. Not only were racial slurs common, but these migrants often had no options for the limited employment opportunities in these border towns. No one questions where are the uh, European asylum seekers? How come they're not living out in the dirt with the brown and black people? No one ever asked that question. Where are the white people in all of this? The white people are sitting right here in the U.S. awaiting their U.S. trials. That's where the white people are. It's racism. That's it. The foundation of the immigration system is intended to create conflict among groups and scarcity based on national origin. The United States doesn't want too many people from brown, black, or Asian countries emigrating, so they create limits, caps based on where you're from. Countries like Mexico, the Philippines, India, China. But if you're from England or Portugal, the path is much easier. And as all this was going on, the camp was being bulldozed, avenue by avenue, tent by tent. They had already started tearing stuff down before the last group even left. They took out the electricity, they took out the porta potties, like the water, everything was taken out, which made it worse, in my opinion. Like, here's this group of people living there, and you guys are, like, literally bulldozing stuff around them. No more pupusa stands. No more school for the children. No more chats with your neighbors. I think that there was a change, definitely. Now I'm starting to see that the tents are empty and out. And also, at night, it got scarier. Like, we don't know. Like, I'm by myself. Like, it's a safety issue, too. My neighbor, that's the one that was watching over me um, when I was sleeping, or that that's the person that when I didn't have something, I just reach out. That neighbor's not there anymore. This is not the same community anymore. When we heard stories about women being raped, about children being hurt, about organized crime getting into the encampment and threatening people's lives. It just didn't sit well. You know, this was kind of our little picturesque village, our, the people that we were helping and, and, and nurturing and just so that they could have an opportunity to come into the United States. And we knew that nothing that we did could really protect them from what was there. And that was really the worst part of all. As I headed to the north end of the camp to get ready to depart, I ran into Daisy. Daisy's daughter had been harassed by men in the camp, so for her daughter's safety, she was sent to cross alone several months prior. She traveled with several other children, and because they were unaccompanied children from Central America, 
They had some legal protections if they made it to U.S. shores alone. Daisy, now alone, told me she had to fend off a potential sexual assault the night before. Her eyes were still puffy from crying. We don't know who tried to enter Daisy's tent that night, but the security of the encampment had loosened as fewer and fewer people were left. A couple of counselors from the United Nations moved Daisy to a new tent with more people around. Safety in numbers. But things inside the camp were getting worse by the day. You know, when we're talking about who's forgotten and who's marginalized, it's, it's not a black and white to me. It is a perspective and the angle that you look at it. At the end of day seven of the humanitarian effort, we still had no clear answer from the Biden administration. Would Daisy, whose daughter was sent ahead because of the dangerous conditions created by MPP, would she be denied the opportunity to reunite with her daughter? Would Antonio, the gentle giant and legal assistant extraordinaire, be shut out due to an unfair hearing? And Cindy, awaiting in a shelter without the ability to walk in the neighborhood due to dangerous conditions for trans women, how long would she have to wait to be safe? Even though we didn't have the answers yet, we were still determined as hell to keep the pressure up to ensure everyone had a fair shot to enter the U.S. Valle de Sueños is produced by Selena Peña, Charlie Vela, and me. Made in partnership with Trucha RGV. Edited an original theme composed by Charlie Vela. Written and hosted by me, Laura Peña. With artwork by Monica Lugo. Music in this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. For a full track listing, check the show notes. For more information about Valle de Sueños, please visit us online at valladesueños.com with a regular 